Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Teresa Sekirka. Do you mind if I call you Teresa during the interview? Is that please? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Uh, Teresa, I start all my interviews with the exact same question. Where did your sense of music come from? Hmm. That's a question that I, I suppose I've never really thought of much. <laughs> I suppose it comes from, from my like ancestors. Um, that's really where I'm feeling uh, the most drawn to and the most, I'm really starting to become aware of, of what it is my job is here on earth. I come from a long line of like matriarchal folk healers and I'm kind of realizing that I also am one of those people, but in a different kind of realm. So I suppose now that I'm getting closer to 40, I'd answer that question that it comes from, the women of my my ancestors, my ancestors and the women of my past. It's deeply rooted there for sure. Uh, growing up, were you a musical family? Were your mother and father musical, and did that influence you into uh, your jazz upbringing, your Ukrainian upbringing, your Ukrainian folk upbringing? Yeah, it definitely. Like I was always very. Um, I played the violin. That was my very first instrument, and that was kind of the instrument that I was supposed to play in my family. There was like, my other sister had the voice and my dad was the accordion player. And I was just, I was the violinist in the family and that's kind of where I was placed. And I had a great ear for um, harmony at a very young age. But yeah, like it's so, it's so deeply rooted in the folk music that we grew up with but we were always listening to music, you know, like uh, always if Neil Young or like Roger Whitaker, like just eight, eight tracks of car, the Carpenters were huge and Whitney Houston. And just, there was always music going on in our lives, but I would definitely say that where my musical talent kind of was built was on that, on those, those Ukrainian folk songs that are just so like deeply heartbreaking and beautiful and harmonious and melodic and that's where where it starts for me for sure but yeah it, like getting into jazz and all of that's all of that stuff was later on in in my well earlier in in on in my 20s so I, I kind of found that on my own once I went to college you know that was and then I started to really go like oh yeah like this is, this feels right. You know, like this feels right in my soul. I would listen to Ella Fitzgerald and, and just be completely mind blown about what she was doing in her scatting and just melodically what she was thinking. And I would obsess over the notating her solos in my head, you know? So I knew that there was like, it started with the violin, but I knew that there was something, you know, obsessive happening. <laughs> now, 
for those who don't know, you went to Red Deer College here in Alberta. Um, mm-hmm. When you traditionally think of Alberta, you don't traditionally think of jazz and Ella Fitzgerald. So no. were you the sort of uh, quote unquote oddball out listening to Ella Fitzgerald in a class that is so uh, in a province that is so ingrained in country music in that uh, old rock? Well, it's quite funny, actually. I, I was I applied to a couple of schools in Toronto and I had, I had received the fact that I, I, I was, you know, I got accepted to Ryerson and I really wanted to go and do this kind of musical theater kind of challenge myself in that way. But my parents were just like, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that you're going there. And, you know, we're not going to help you do that. And, and so I found this college in Red Deer because I had an aunt and uncle living there. And I thought, well, maybe I can board with my, my aunt and uncle, you know. And my parents were so adamant about me not becoming a musician that they said, like, no, we're not going to help you do this. You know, we want you to have a real job. And so I thought, move to Red Deer and, like, live with my aunt and uncle. But then my aunt and uncle said, you know, your parents have told us that you just, you have to do this on your own. So I, I found Red Deer College to be like this super freeing and independent like excitement because it was all just on my own volition that I was, I was like, I, I am actually really good and I'm, I might be like better than some people at this. So why the heck wouldn't I just try? So I put, you know, pretty much, you know, my, my parents, tried to help me here and there, but I think that they were so kind of scorned about me choosing music that uh, they never really got over that. And then when Canadian Idol came along, it was like a whole different bag of beans. But being at Red Deer College there, it's, it's surprising how, how many people were into jazz there because there was such a small community of it, but we were so all really obsessively interested in it. And we had really great professors that were just so great, you know, and so... Yeah, it was just, it was such a great experience. And it totally, that place freed me as a musician, really. And just made me realize, like, there are so many different genres. And sure that there was, there was a pretty big country feel there. There was still so much musical theater going on. There were so many people, like, doing crazy fusion jazz, you know? Because we were all the, all of the weirdos that were, feeling like weirdos, you know, we just made music and it was so awesome. It was just like constantly playing music for two years straight. So when you were in college, was there a moment when you said, okay, I'm going to do X after college. I'm going to go move to Toronto, move to Vancouver, where the hub of the music industry is in sort of Canada to sort of expand that. Yeah. I mean, I always had that dream for sure of, of like, getting, going out East for sure. And, you know, maybe Montreal or maybe Toronto. I always had that dream, but it was just, it was, I really had, I really realized now in my, in my later life, not that I'm old, but just reflecting on everything. I really wanted to make my family and my parents proud. And that never equated to music. So um, after I went through, you know, one year of music at Red Deer College and my second year, I tried to go back into nursing and I just took a couple of music classes here and there. So I never graduated with a diploma because I always had this 
nagging guilt of like what I should do to make my family proud, you know? And that's a huge, you know, I, in all, in all retrospect, I blame myself the most for letting myself just lose focus of, of what, what made my heart sing and what made me happy. But yeah, I just, it took a long time to get to Toronto and then Idol was sort of the thing that made my family see me in a different light, perhaps with like money signs <laughs> in their eyes, you know? And so then that was when the bandwagon jumping really started to happen when they were like, Oh my God, well, she won this competition and now she's going to see the celebrity judges. And it's like, Oh, well we supported her the whole way, you know? And it was like, Oh, wow, they, I'm making them proud. And now I want to do all of those things. And that I'm so proud, you know, I may, I'm proud of making them proud, but it was all just, you know, slathered in, um, in just really unhealthy, uh, controlling. Um, which, sad, which sad. is sad. And I, I understand. I, I kind of feel the same way because when I decided to go off to college, my family said, you should go to this, you should go to business administration. You'll do better in that. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to go in television and it just, they just, they didn't support me, but then afterwards, once they saw that I was making money, I got the jobs. They're like, oh, yeah, we always supported you. Congratulations. It was one of those yeah. double-edged swords where it's you so look back common. and you go. <laughs> it's so common, you know, like, because I feel like they, they feel guilt about the decisions that they made. And that's all well and fine because we are adults now and we can kind of navigate through our emotions. But, like, it's pretty hard, you know. You, you feel it's hard for me to like get over the uh, holding myself back because I wanted to make them proud. You know, that's the hardest part for me because I really feel like I could have flown pretty, pretty well, pretty high. But I think also it was really important for me to go through all of this stuff. You know, that's my dog. Sorry. No worries. (laughs) Rejection to me and, and, and those kinds of like really negative emotions are, are a catalyst for, for songwriting for me. And, and it's important to, to, to have that perspective and that insight and that heartbreak in order to really authentically write songs as far as I'm concerned. So I, it's like you say, it's a double-edged sword. It's like, I have so much sadness of, of them, you know, not accepting me as a musician and still some people in the musician or is still in the industry. I feel that way, but it's also like, that's fodder for, for song. I I love chatting with guests who sort of help me with the progression of the story that I'm telling because we're talking about story writing, which was going to be my next topic is does your story, uh, your songwriting come from? Is it, is it that deep personal connection of telling a story about what happened to you? Or is there some other catalyst that you are able to uh, dial into to potentially write a song like your uh, albums that you've already released? Well, that's, uh, that's so exciting to me. Like I, I, because I kind of felt like I was in, in this arrested development kind of stage for like, you know, a good 15 years. Now I'm really starting to take that storytelling and that songwriting ability to heart and, and to realize like, like I lost my jobs to COVID. I was working for the Saskatchewan Jazz Festival and I was working for the Nutrient Children's Festival. It's pretty unlikely for these festivals to, to come back anytime soon. So 
when I, when I lost my jobs, I was like, Holy Moses, like I have to take this music thing. Like I have to force myself to make money with this music thing. Like with, even though it's been seven years since I've released anything, I really just, I really need to start doing this because I don't have any choice. You know, it was like a forced, forced, um, moment. But then I started to really think about my obligation as a storyteller, my obligation as a songwriter and how that is such a unique skill and skill to be able to hone. Like it really started to, to um, roll around in there when I realized like I have to tell these stories. So now in my, in the last little while I've been, noticing that about myself and being able to take a story from somebody else's perspective. And I'm starting to write from that, from that manner now, which I never really did before. It usually in my past writing, it really came with going through something really personal and really deeply painful and then navigating through how I got through it and then writing songs. Like I'm not by any means a prolific writer. Like I have to experience big time to, to come up with something that in my mind is good enough. But yeah, yeah, like I just, uh, I feel like it's such, it's like, it's such an underrated, um, skill. And I feel like a lot of storytellers don't really know that they're good storytellers yet. You know, it's kind of weird. No. And I agree. Um, now as an independent artist, as an uh, artist who's not attached to a label, do you find it easier to write music that way because you're not con uh, confined to a label who wants to sell you in a certain light uh, or sell you in another light that you're, you may not be Absolutely. comfortable with? Completely. Like from the beginning of Canadian Idol, that was something that was really, really important to me. Like I wanted to be my authentic individual self. And I always really stood up to the industry types that said, you have to fit into this box or you have to, you should put on this outfit or this type of makeup or this, I just couldn't buy into it. And which also translated into my second album, which was all my own songs, even though I, you know, my first album after Canadian Idol was a strategic, strategic move. So I could, you know, make a bit of money to make the album that I wanted to make. And then it just so happened that I did get signed for a label, but signed to a label for that album. But it's, it was just, it was so obvious to me that, that I wanted to like, that I was playing the long game, Christopher, like that, that was the biggest thing. It was like, these people see me, you know, BMG Sony wants to sign me. They'll give three months after idol happened. And, and I knew that they would never want me. They told me from the moment that I signed my top 32 deal. Once I got to the top 32, they, they'd said to me straight up, you're not marketable to us straight in my eyes. You know, like those are the things that you hear. And luckily I was 23 at the time I wasn't 16. So it didn't crush my security about myself. I was like, you know what? screw you. <laughs> like I'm 23 and you think I'm not marketable. Well, maybe one day I will be, <laughs> you know, it's so, so interesting. I didn't know that. And I've got to ask the question 
at that moment, when they say that to you, how do you not just walk, get up and walk out of the room and say, you know what, if I'm not marketable, why am I even on this show then? Yes, exactly. I don't know why I didn't, you know, I didn't even shed a tear about it. I mean, I'm looking back at all of these old journals from my time back then. And I was like, so strong. Like, I don't even know how I was so strong. Like, how did I get such thick skin? I was like, I don't care. I'm in it not to win it. I'm here for the experience. And then here I am them telling me that I'm not marketable. And then I get to second place. Like somebody's wrong here. You know, when we were at top 32 and you were telling me that I'm not marketable, well, oh my God, that like, they were so scared that I was going to (laughs) win. Really? Oh my God. Yes. Because they were like, this girl's not going to do the things that we want her to do to sell records. Like, they had you up to five albums or, you know, like they had Kalen for up to five albums. So were you the only one that they said this to? Do you know, like after you got heard this, did you go talk to your fellow contestants and say, no, guys, no, no, no. like they, they've predetermined who they want to win in some sense. No, I, it was just like, I was so, I was exactly who you thought I was. You know, when you saw me on camera, people are like, oh, she's so wholesome and kind. And I was just so grateful for the experience. I was so thankful to all those crew people because they became my family. Like CTV treated us like, like we were, they were our family. But it's that idol brand that is like the confusing part, right? And there is... You have to remember, this is the beginning of reality TV, right? Like, this is one of the the first ones in Canada. So it was like a completely different way of running things, you know? They didn't want you to necessarily... Not that CTV wanted you to be your authentic self from the get-go. They were always saying, Teresa, be yourself. You're amazing, you know? Do whatever makes you feel... Right. And so when you have a cheerleader like that, it's, it's easy because they're reminding you every day that, you know, those people that you saw when you signed your BMG Sony contract, that none of that stuff matters. You know, those are record label people. The industry was so different back then. And I mean, maybe I can kind of see it from that perspective, but if, you know, if we've learned anything from COVID-19, we're realizing that, it's not the promoters and the agents and the managers that create the, the industry. Who is it? It's the artist that creates the industry. It's the person who writes the songs. And we're seeing that from a huge, a plethora of artists that are still busting their butts and are able to bust their butts during COVID-19 to try and make money doing what they have been honing for years. And it is really as heartbreaking as it is to see, you know, my, my, the jazz festival and the children's festival and every festival and every non-for-profit, you know, hurting from this virus. It's, it's like, it's amazing to see that these artists, these songwriters, these people that are creators are being relied on so much by just regular people because they want to, you you know, they want to consume their music or their stories or their, we artists are just so 
underrated in Canada. <laughs> in Montreal, they, they really get you and they, they're like, your craft is important to us and we love you and we nurture you and this is a beautiful thing. And I think that that's flooding through Canada now because of COVID. I think that we're really starting to realize like, we need music, we need art, we need those things. Well, I find, especially right now with COVID-19, there is no escape from your house, right? You're not going out. So what are people turning to? It's something that brings them joy, whether mm-hmm. that be art on TV, whether that be art on Spotify or a music album that they've listened to in the past. So music has the ability to let us escape into a reality that is so different from our own. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's being a being made apparent to a lot of people. And I think that there's, you know, there's going to be, there's already eruptions of, of volcanoes happening, you know, like just, I, I can see the change. I can see people changing. I really am. I'm just, I just am optimistic that that kindness and love and, and just empathy will prevail. But I, you know, I've, I, I don't even really consider myself an optimist. I'm like, I'm a realist. I just, I believe that humanity's goodness will prevail. This is a philosophical one, eh? (laughs) We are. We're getting deep on this one. There's a question I've I've wanted to ask uh, all former contestants of reality shows. And 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 if you don't want to answer this, uh, you don't have to. Was the drop from reality after the labels left you after you sort of became an independent artist hard when they sort of just pushed you away and said, okay, we're done with your three month contract. Now we don't need you anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely the ego self. It's definitely a kick to the ego because you are so you're just a big deal at that moment, you know, and everybody's concentrating on you and then it's just like, the the very next day you are barely doing any press after that finale. It was like, Holy Moses. But then I think the hardest part, Chris was moving back home after all of that, because there was no counseling that was put into place. There was no checkup. There was no, he was lonely and isolating. And even though there was no anonymity, it was so isolating. Like I just, I had a really hard time those first couple of years because I just couldn't leave my house without having a, having a sense of normalcy. Like it was just, and everybody had something to say, you know? Everybody had their opinions on it and, you know, everyone's, you know, it was always like, oh, you look skinny or, oh, you, gosh, you're not eating. And it's like, I'm stressed, man. <laughs> like, give me a break. Like, I had just been judged for like five months <laughs> on a national level. Like, back off. And now you're going to judge me in my grocery store. Just leave me alone. Maybe not talk about how I need to have kids or get married. Maybe you don't matter in my personal discussions. Like I get it, you know, like I really get that people connected with me and like, 
And I love that because I do love connecting with people, but at a certain way, it's like, oh my gosh, like, let's dial it back a little, you know? <laughs> so to, to upbeat this, because we are getting into a dark place here, let's try to <laughs> keep it positive. Um, I, I, when, you, when you accepted my offer to come on the show, I was actually very happy because uh, two of your songs off your second album were played at my wedding. And no. I, I, I do, yes, actually, uh, Waiting Song and Sandy Eyes. Um, so um, I, I married the Minister of Culture and Tourism here in Alberta under the Alberta NDP. Uh, I forced him to listen to the waiting song numerous times because it was the running joke in our house that I was always waiting for him. So uh, I do want to say that your music has touched me and touched my family in a way that uh, it has brought together a beautiful relationship. And I, I sing you that song from time to time down in the basement and my husband will send me text messages saying that I'm killing cats downstairs with my voice. So, so I want to thank you for that. And I just, I needed to put that on the record because I, I, your music has meant much. And I know that people across the probably country have said the exact same thing. I just wanted to let you know that. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you. And I'm honored. Oh my God. (laughs) I still cry all the time. But there is a new song that you have just released seven yes. years after your last uh, album. Uh, Absolutely. Our, how did this come about? Well, like I said, when I, I said I lost my job to COVID and, and then uh, Jesse Brown, uh, a musician here in Saskatoon, reached out to me. And he's been really prominent in the last couple of years. He's been really prominent on the on the Spotify stream streaming zone which is like a completely different world to me and he said you know t you lost your jobs like let's let's get some stuff going and i was like i don't have any original stuff that i'm ready to show people right now and like i just i'm just not ready and he's like well let's get get a little side project get going let's do some cover songs and see how that goes and I said, okay. So we were in full isolation and, and we, you know, emailed back and forth a couple of ideas of songs and, and our house, because we were both isolated and everyone was isolated. Our house is a madness song from 1983. It's a cover of their song. And it just clicked to us that this was the song that we needed to do. And then we kind of sent tracks back and forth, um, socially distant and like things were working pretty well but I was recording in my laundry room which is just right here and about a closet you know size and the vocals weren't right and it was just like we just couldn't quite get the track to sound very very good at all so we went to Simon Yasinek at Bees Knees recording and he uh he re-recorded my vocals then we got Trevor Case to master and this gentleman uh, Eric Racy in LA Uh, offered to mix it for us and then the biggest thing is just like we had such we had such an amazing we were both so motivated to do it that it just happened so easily and then uh, our buddy dad my buddy dad and Clapson from Eat North he just helped us get the word out you know and it's been it's been doing so well on Spotify we got in the first week it was out in the first two days it was out we got an editorial playlist um, ad which is like a huge deal in the spotify world uh for a monthly uh 
or sorry for us. It's an editorial playlist and it's called Folk and Friends. So that alone is like 55% of all the spins we're getting. But I checked this morning and it's up to 9,000 streams. Wow. And uh, I have now 5,000 monthly listeners, which is like so huge, you know? So our house, it's, uh, it's doing, it's performing really well. It's nice. And you must give credit because uh, when you first started in the industry, Spotify wasn't around. People had to go out and buy that album. They had yeah. to pick up that album, bring it home, listen to it. Now you have so many uh, venues to potentially get out your music like Spotify that you're able to pick up 9,000 listens within the first two, three weeks of being released. I, yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. It's like a completely different way of business, you know, and you can watch it all in real time. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah. And so we're going to keep, we're going to keep doing some more um, cover releases. We have another one coming out of Louis Capaldi's let it go um, coming out October 16th. And then we'll have a couple more. We'll have one in November come out and another one in November or December rather. We'll just be like the countdown to 2020. Let's get this year over 2021. With. Yeah. Um, what is, is there a potential of a new album in the future or you know, is that I still just, off in the I've been just trying to get myself I've been really letting myself get bullied these last seven years you know and I'm kind of coming out of that that um allowing people to bully me mentality. I have just let people walk all over me for my whole life, which is, and trusted people that I just uh, really shouldn't have trusted them, you know? And, and I'm ready now to take, take life and just go, you know, I'm just, so I'm going to say, yeah, like I'm going to write, a, I'm going to write more, more songs. I have, I went to Simon's um, studio just the other night, Bees Knees recording, and I recorded an, an original song and, and, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in strengthening my relationship with Jesse Brown and Trevor Case because they're just so close. They live here in Saskatoon. They're so unbelievably musical and I just have to, you know, I'm on a new path to just trust the ones, trust the people that are, are good, that have good intentions, you know? That's true. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a while to, to, you know, get through the, the snakes in the grass, right? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. People, their first impression might always be well-intentioned, but they always come out of the woodworks at the end of the day and say, exactly. hey, I'm actually not a good person and <laughs> I'm just using you for X, Y, and Z, right? Exactly. But you know what's really great about life is that there's always experiences that happen. And one thing, there's this is what's great about all of this, these last 16 years, it hasn't been like sad and gloomy and depressing the whole time. I've been collecting all of this beautiful stuff and I'm actually really putting a lot of energy into writing a musical um, animated sitcom that is called Back to Reality. And You are um, the best segue ever. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you know what? This is my first, second podcast, but it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> That. Well, well, I guess I don't need to introduce your next project that you're working on, Back to Reality. Yeah, Talk me through this because you sent me some information about it 
And it is your life, isn't it? It is. It's totally my life. Um, her name, it's so, it's, a, it's about a girl who goes through a reality TV show and she moves back to her hometown and it's kind of just navigates through her life after that. And she, you know, opens up a restaurant that has live music and live, like, beat poetry and comics are there and just, like, all these weird and eccentric and, and just kind of ostracized people show up at, at her place, the Idol Bird, and she's just this really hilarious woman <laughs> and her name is april fool which is actually the day that i was born on so that's the that's the connection there she's in her late 30s and she's wants to be she wants to go from being a, a super depressing songwriter and she wants to kind of get into uh the musical comedy scene which is just hilarious because she so writes it, it, hilarious. Is it life songs. imitating art a little bit? Like, do you oh, want yeah, I mean, I, it's it's loosely it's loosely autobiographical. <laughs> um, where did this come from? Like, it seems such like you don't traditionally think of someone like yourself who would be into Ukrainian folk music. And then when I read the first bit of the script, I was like, what? What? <laughs> okay, this is not the girl I knew from that reality show. Oh, this is I someone know. completely different. But that's the thing about it, you know, like after Idol, I was so scared to really true show my true colors and be my true authentic self because I was so judged all the time. And I never really, it's not that I'm a bad person. I just have a terrible sense of humor <laughs> and it can be misconstrued a lot, you know, and this, this show back to reality for me is my freak flag like i'm just like let it all out let's write these ridiculous songs about old women coming up to me in the grocery store telling me that i better freeze my eggs like that thing actually happened to me and there are stories like unbelievable stories that will come out in this sitcom but i i, I hope it gets made <laughs> it's still in the process i pitched it to netflix and I've pitched to CTV. I got a no from CBC, but I just, uh, I think it's hilarious. You know, I, I, it's like Flight of the Concords meets Bob's Burgers meets like Gary and his demons, you know, like it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be an amazing thing. If I can just get a hold of like Tina Fey. <laughs> You're a writing partner for the show as well. Uh, talk me through about yeah. your connection. I forget the guy's gentleman's name already, well, and I apologize. No, it's okay. Tim Tim Tyler is the guy who who owns he owns an animation studio here in in Saskatoon, and he's kind of like really helped me navigate through this pitch. And then we had Elaine Will, who's just an amazing artist that helped us with with all the art. But the guy who really stepped up, Miles Morrison. He's a he's a comic here in town. And he kind of went through the same reality TV thing on a, on a smaller scale through the comedy scene. And he actually, he was a runner up. We didn't find this out until like, he didn't tell me until a couple of weeks ago that he was actually the runner up of this comedy um, show that he was on. And he helped me write the script. And it was just like, once I found him to write with, it was, it, things really started going well. Cause he just, he's just get, he gets it. He gets it. And it's been really exciting. You know, I'm really proud of it. I, 
I really, I, I'm waiting to hear from Netflix and just like they said they would let us know at the end of August and it's almost the end of September. So you can imagine how they're all, who knows what the months are like right now. Yeah. I mean, it could be Christmas right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, look at last night, last night, uh, Canadian comedies are winning down the States, right? Yep. Canadian comedies and television right now are where it's at. Yeah. And what was the decision behind going animated? If you don't, don't think that. I didn't write to Dan Levy <laughs> because you know, what's really funny. He used to be, he used to work on idol. Okay. When I was on the show and he, when we would do um, production run throughs, he would sit in and be the production run through of like, he would have to be SAS Jordan or Farley. Like he would be the person who sat in for SAS and be like, he, when we were doing the production run throughs. So I never heard anything back from him, <laughs> but it's probably because he's so big beans now and I'm like small beans but hey, you're you're big to people right that's all that matters <laughs> and at the end of the day I, I find the so stature fun. of people so uh misconstrued because you might think that oh this guy's won an Emmy but at the end of the day you have uh, fans across this country as well so True. it's not just because he won an Emmy he's better he's not <laughs> that's that's my pep talk for the day. That I, that's great. I love that. That's optimistic. It's beautiful. But why an animated show, if you don't mind me asking? Because you, you see more uh, uh, animated shows coming out right now with Corner Gas Animated, the animated show. Why did you make the conscious decision to make it an animated show? Well, before, the first time I pitched this to Insight Productions was in 2014. Oh, wow. So this is a labor of love, right? Like it was a sitcom back then and it was not animated. It was the concept for the musical part was there, but it was mostly, I didn't, ha I didn't send them any music with it. So, um, actually I did send one, one, yeah, one tune that was pretty bad pretty offensive like pretty offensive like the, i didn't hear anything back from insight and i honestly i wasn't surprised but it's like a process right you know like oh i'll try this out and, and then um about well i guess four years later or two years later four years later i had uh, i was going to toronto for for a gig and I was sitting next to this gentleman named Tim Tyler, who is a, he owned, a, he owns an animation studio here in Saskatoon. And we were sitting next to each other. And, and I was like, Hey man, like my name is Teresa Sikirka. And he's like, Oh yeah, I know who you are. And I was like, Oh cool. And then he was telling me about his projects. And I was like, well, I have this idea for this sitcom and briefly told him about it on the flight there and we shook hands and it was really great and said, yeah, smell you later, whatever. And then two years later, I called him up on the phone and that was just over a year ago now. And I said, yeah, like it should be animated. Like this is, this is kind of a cool idea and I'm writing a lot of really silly songs for this. So things started to like really come together and then yeah that's why we did it and, and mainly I guess for me it was like I just don't want to be on camera I don't even know if I really want to voice April I would love someone like Alessia Cara to be April 
or just some really super cool, like, or like Lennon Stella, you know, like I can dream, right? I mean, Tina Fey is essentially going to executive produce it. So <laughs> there you go. If you put it out there right now, Tina Fey is going to do it. Lauren Michaels is going to pick it up as well. You're going to get the whole SNL cast to do it. People are going to think I have lost my mind. (laughs) Well, it's COVID-19. Everyone's lost their mind by now. (laughs) Oh, my God. I, I just, I hope people hear the music and then they can be like, okay. Maybe she's not that crazy. <laughs> well, I laughed my uh, my butt off when I heard the song that you sent me, My Eggs. So I chuckled for my eggs. Oh, God. My my partner looked at me and said, why are you laughing so hard? You have to listen to this. So he was chuckling too. So you have that's, fans. That's not even the funniest one. It's what? not even close to the funniest one. So that's I'm serious. Awesome. So we just um, need to get Tina... <laughs> I like how you just go right for Tina. You don't build up. It's just nope. We're doing Tina, Tina or bust. Okay, come on. If it's not Thirty Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, what are we doing in this? Yeah, world? I'm. I'm. I'm retired. <laughs> retired from producing a show. You know, it's because she did the musical Mean Girls. That's the only reason why she can. <laughs> I've lost my mind. Completely oh. lost it. Could you imagine though if it actually happened, Christopher? Oh my god. I'm like you need to we need to start tweeting her. We'll start a campaign. Tina I can't even find her real tweet address. <laughs> I don't think she help. has one. I don't think she does. Let's start a hashtag I, though. She'll have to follow a hashtag. Everyone knows what a hashtag is these days. Oh my god. If this election isn't bringing Tina Fey to Twitter, <laughs> then what will? Back to reality. <laughs> Back to reality, Will. Totally. Oh, my gosh. Um, Teresa, um, I do want to thank you so much for this. We are oh coming up at your, like, it's the perfect way to end it. Just we'll talk about Tina Fey for 10 minutes. <laughs> I love her so much. There is no person, no, I, I, like, I don't even know what I would say to her if I met her, you know? This is we need to get this to happen. I will work on my LA connections, all three of them, to see if I can find them. Oh my gosh, please help me. Um, <laughs> Risa, I want to thank you so much. You look, you sound like you have so much optimism for the remainder of 2020, and I don't know I how do. you do, but you do. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, it's, it, it's, it's been really amazing to watch this new release and I'm just, I'm so happy to be out in the world again. You know, I really want to share my voice. I'm not, I'm not feeling bullied or rejected anymore. And I'm like ready to just do my duty as a, as a, as a, as a healer with my voice. And I'm just, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) And I thank you. Having well, me. thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Um, yet again, our house is on Spotify. The music videos on YouTube as well, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, correct? There's no video, but maybe one day. We just don't have the dough to do those kinds of things. But yeah, like make sure, yeah, follow me on Spotify because then if you if people follow me on Spotify, then they'll get the next releases and and uh, that's the best way to do it for sure. 
And then you follow you on Facebook as well, because I know you're active on that as well. Mm-hmm, and sure. also, do you have a Twitter? Because you're telling Tr- Tina Fey to have a Twitter, so you better have a Twitter. I do have a Twitter, and I, it is quite comical, my tw- my tweet account. <laughs> I do troll the President of the United States, and <gasps> it's fun. <laughs> I put in my morning, my morning tweet. You haven't been blocked yet? I'm surprised. I, I don't think I even register on them. I, I call it troll podocytis. It's just, it's my sickness. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Again. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Bless your heart. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.